Welcome back to the new academic year here at the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson and I'm sitting here today in Edinburgh with my co-host, Christopher Cotter. We are brought to you, as ever, by the British Association for the Study of Religions and we're also brought to you um, with our very nice new sound setup. Yeah, um, you asked for it, we got it. So uh, hopefully you're going to enjoy sparkling stereo sound. Our first interview this year is from uh, Lawrence Cox, and he was interviewed by Owen O'Mahony on the subject of encounters between Buddhism and the West. This is a historical analysis of how Buddhism came to the West, focusing on the Irish case study. So take it away, Owen. I'm here today in the peaceful surroundings of St. Patrick's College of Education in Dublin with Dr. Lawrence Cox. Uh, You're welcome, Lawrence. Thanks. Uh, Lawrence is at the Department of Sociology in Maynooth University. Uh, His primary interest is in social movement studies, and he's a co-founder of the practitioner-oriented journal called Interface, and he's also co-chair of the Council for European Studies Social Movements Research Network. Uh, But another field of your research, Lawrence, is in Buddhist studies, Um, and you co-founded the Irish Society for the Academic Study of Religion, and co-organised Ireland's first academic conference on new religious movements and Assasser's second conference. Um, And you've also twice guest-edited the Journal of Contemporary Buddhism. Hmm. So um, we we might talk a little bit about that, but I guess from my own point of view as a geographer, I'm interested in in how, uh, in mobility Mm -hmm. and the mobility of cultural practices, particularly as it relates to the religious. So your work has focused on the story of one particular Irishman uh, maybe to kind of help us understand Buddhism's relationship with what we might loosely call the West. Okay. Well, this Irishman, as we come to know of him, is ordained in Rangoon, colonial Rangoon, in 1900. So um, at the height of the British Empire, really. He's somebody, we believe, to have been born in Booterstown in South Dublin, worked his way across the Atlantic um, as a young emigrant via probably Liverpool and New York, works uh, as a sailor up and down the East Coast, perhaps on inland waterways through as far as the Great Lakes, Chicago, uh, and then westwards to California and the Trans-Pacific Lines. So we see somebody, in a sense, a very classic Irish route of mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, and then winding up as a poor white in Asia. And in focusing on empire, we tend to focus on great military leaders, colonial figures, uh, and scholars. But in a country like India, more than half of the whites who were there were poor. They were very often ex-soldiers, ex-sailors, beachcombers, and so on. And they're very problematic um, population from the point of view of the colonial authorities. Okay, um, so we, mm-hmm. we might talk a little bit yeah. about how we problematise that later. Mm-hmm. So um, this um, Irishman, uh, Lawrence Carroll, uh, was, as you say, a kind mm-hmm. of a traditional migrant uh, who would have emigrated across the United States um, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, at what stage uh, w- was his intention always perhaps to to become the Buddhist monk, or was it was it a conversion process maybe that he he met as he went across the United States and, and thence into Asia? 
Well, if you think of one of the traditional roles of religion in mobility, it's to provide access to ethnic networks, uh, and uh, very strongly, of course, for the Irish abroad to provide jobs. And I think it's very clear that um, when, if somebody becomes what at the time would have been called a race traitor in Asia, stepping out of white privilege but also converting from Christianity, these kinds of things were the subjects of moral panics. It's almost certainly because he had chosen not to or not been able to do this at some previous point. And in fact, in that trajectory I've just mentioned, there is um, ethno-religious boundary after ethno-religious boundary. So Irish, Catholic and English, Protestant in Mm -hmm. Liverpool, Irish and black in New York, and very much as hobos. There are huge conflicts because this is the post-Civil War period. There are demobilised soldiers. There are also southern blacks coming north. Mm. He moves through, on his own account, Montana in the period between Red Cloud's War and the Battle of the Little Bighorn, and then California, where he says he was working with Chinese coolies, was at this time a site of nativist, so white American anti-Chinese racism, riots, uh, attacks on Chinese temples and so on. Yes. So I think we have to imagine somebody stepping out of that use of religion Mm. um, and coming as, you know, of course, many people do still today to uh, convert to a religion, I think, through um, an identification of religion with a particular culture. Mm. Arriving in Burma, loving Burma, finding himself much more at home with the ordinary Burmese Mm. than with the white establishment. Mm. I think we're looking at that kind of trajectory. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of different um, elements there you've drawn together. Uh, I suppose maybe just briefly we might kind of explore <laughs> this sense of, um, uh, firstly, of boundaries, of mm. crossing those boundaries. Uh, mm. Clearly, it's a it's a you know it's a, a migration and or pilgrimage experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also about boundaries between. Uh, uh, ethnic religious uh, uh, categories, if you will, mm-hmm. and then secondly, we might talk a little bit about about um, that element of of race and racism and the Irish, maybe mm-hmm. if we to speak a little bit about that. So, just in terms of boundaries, what, what does what does Carol's story tell us about crossing those boundaries? Well, um, we know that there was always a substantial number of people of Europeans going native in Asia from an early point. Um, unsurprisingly. However, it hasn't been very deeply studied. There is rather more study in research and literary studies on moral panics about Europeans going native. Uh, And this is particularly a process after the Indian mutiny. Prior to the Indian mutiny, it was quite common for Europeans in India to have Indian wives and to stay with them, indeed, uh, even to convert to Islam, Hinduism or whatever. After the mutiny, um, in particular, um, the British in Asia become very clear there are not very many of us, and they start to insist on much tighter boundaries around religion, around sex, around behaviour. And these are the things that are challenged um, in in a general way by poor whites Mm. who fail to behave in this very special way that is expected of members of the master race. Not least because... 
unlike the white poor in the Deep South, they are a second class, almost a second caste. Mm. Um, And particularly their children, who haven't been brought up in England, do not have the same privileges Mm. that those who have come out from the metropolis do. Um, So the extreme of that, uh, and the extreme in literary imagining as well as in reality is the Buddhist convert, because here's somebody who doesn't wear shoes, Mm -hmm. uh, a European who is wearing native dress, who is begging, and who has converted away from Christianity, which in this period is becoming increasingly a justification of empire, Mm -hmm. much more so than in the 18th century, when the view was fairly cynical one of, you know, we're here for military and economic purposes and don't disturb the natives, don't Mm. mess with native religion. Mm. By the 20th century, Britain is a democracy and empire abroad is justified certainly by education, by women's rights and so on, but also by we are bringing the gospel. Mm. So a European who converts from Christianity to Buddhism Mm. is a serious challenge to that. So I I guess some of those uh, boundaries and categories you've been speaking about there kind of cross over um, kind of an alternate history of the Irish abroad. You know, the the traditional story we both tell ourselves Mm. and the rest of the world is of a um, a, a white diaspora um, enhanced in its Catholicism or its Protestantism uh, sure. in the earlier part of the nineteenth century. Um, so, so what what does um, Lawrence Carroll or, or Damaloka's story tell us about the intersection then, um, uh, or the representation of Buddhism in the West in particular? I think one way of looking at that is to say that um, we very often had. Um, quite a textual and elite-focused representation of what people knew, which is misleading going back a long, long way. So um, in medieval Ireland, as elsewhere in medieval Europe, uh, one of the most popular representations of Buddhism is that found in the legendary, in the Alexander legend, where Alexander is said to have met Indian ascetics who say, well, you know, you're violent, you're greedy, uh, you eat meat, look at us, we are virtuous, and so on. And, of course, this puts in a safely distant mouth uh, a criticism of one's own local elites. Mm -hmm. And this particular exchange circulated independently and very, very widely in Western Europe. Mm. So this use of elsewhere Mm -hmm. to criticise the way things were here. Mm. And we find that, of course, in the Enlightenment. We find it today, where people will say, well, in the East, this, Mm -hmm. that or the other. Uh, uh, J.J. Clarke talks about this as a dissident Orientalism, a use of the other, not... um, as we've, um, as research has often focused on to um, reinforce our own culture, but in fact to critique our own culture. Mm. But the other aspect of it is that empire depended on an awful lot of ordinary people, uh, and very, very many of those were Irish, um, going as far back as the 14th century, but certainly by the 18th century. Um, there are lots of Irish people in Asia, and Many of them never go home. Yeah. So you start families. Um, you work out your own relationship to the local culture, whatever it is. And 
that kind of knowledge uh, or that kind of relationship to religion becomes very powerful for some people. Now, in the period we're looking at, um, in in relation to Damaloka, so the early 20th century, um, Irish people in Asia quite often think about religion in Asia in the same way that they think about religion in Ireland. So they say there is a local religion and there is a religion of the colonial power. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that Damaloka, he's not the only person importing it, but he's a very important figure in doing so. Um, he brings, in a sense, Daniel O'Connell's lesson to Asia. And Daniel O'Connell's lesson is, well, so in the 1820s and 1830s, the um, uprising of 1798 had been defeated, Ireland had become officially part of the United Kingdom. Um, but O'Connell uses religious identity as a means of mobilising nationalist political power. And this is very much what Damaloka does in Asia as well. So he uses, he becomes a Buddhist, he uses the critique of missionaries uh, as a way of criticising the colonial power. Mm. And in Burma this is particularly tense. So Burma had only finished being conquered in um, the late 1880s. There had been a very brutal counterinsurgency campaign, literally a sea of blood. Um, You could not stand up, even as a white person, and say, yeah, the British Empire should go. But Mm. you certainly could, as a Buddhist monk, um, attack missionaries. And this he did very effectively Mm. in a way that the Buddhist... Sangha, the uh, clerical hierarchy, couldn't. Now, he's ordained by some very, very senior figures. They mm. clearly think he can work in this world. Mm. He can't. You know, they are mm. still at some level. They would like to re-establish the monarchy. And indeed, there are negotiations with the British to have this sort of ruler of the Sangha appointed by... So that they're in a, you know, what we might call a reactionary phase. But that's not the only card they're playing. They're also ordaining this guy who goes out and becomes a celebrity preacher. You know, people will travel for three days on ox carts mm. to come and hear him preach. Yes. And what he says is the moral order is under threat. Mm. Christianity is coming. Okay. Assert yourself as Buddhists and as Burmese. Mm. And this by the 1920s, after his time, has become the central message of Burmese nationalism and is what leads to um, the Burmese state as it becomes. So there's that kind of crucial alliance then um, at a certain stage between uh, nationalism and religion Mm. that he would have known from his own experience growing up in Ireland. Yes. Now, it's it's a complicated area because in his own time and I think for himself it's primarily an anti-colonial response it's not yet what we would call a modern nationalist response that comes later and indeed a lot of his allies are not from the central Burman ethnicity or uh, indeed when he's active in Thailand or Singapore Penang the same is true The people that he's working with are very often from the more minor ethnicities, so the Dawei, uh, who are spread across several of these countries, the Arakanese, and so on and so forth, who are part themselves. They're pursuing a different strategy again, which doesn't succeed. 
but uh, they are among the first groups to uh, really invest in what we call um, the Buddhist revival of the late 19th century, which is where, in much of colonial Asia, um, and indeed in independent countries, Japan and Thailand, people come to have a more political consciousness of Buddhism as a pan-Asian religion, and therefore as an alternate route to modernity and a challenge to empire. So the Arakanese, for example, are not only engaged with Damaloka, they're among the first sponsors of Dharmapala, founding the Mahabodhi Society, attempting to regain control of the Mahabodhi Temple in India, a place, uh, a part of India where there are no Buddhists at this point, as part of that global Buddhism. And at this point, the national Sanghas, if you like, are holding on to their own local power. It's only later that they swing in behind the Dharmapalas and this new mode of nationalist Buddhism. So there's a series then of a series of fascinating uh, boundaries being crossed at the time that Damaloka's becoming established in that part of the world, which relate to both colonial and anti-colonial struggles across boundaries, across national boundaries, as they were imposed by colonial powers. It's it was extraordinarily complicated for people at the time to grasp. Yes. They are, we might say that they're using religion metaphorically or whatever, but they have to have a language which they understand and which other people understand to say, this is what's going on and this is what we are doing. Um, if I can move temporarily to another Irish figure, um, Charles Founds, who found, organizes the first Buddhist mission to the West. This is in London from 1889 to 1892. Um, this is coming uh, for Founds now. He is the delegate of a Japanese Buddhist missionary society, which is starting to engage in this process of how do we bring Buddhism to the West. And, of course, under the Meiji, the Japanese have to work out what is religion in the first place. Okay. And Japanese, what we would now call political and religious elites, but of course they don't think in those terms, yes. they send delegation after delegation to Europe, Founds comes with one of them as an interpreter, in the period so uh, after the defeat of the Paris Commune and the building of the Basilica of Montmartre, but it's also the Kulturkampf in Germany, it's just after disestablishment of the Irish Church. And they go around and they talk to, you know, Max Müller and so on to say, well, what is religion? What is the state? Mm. How should church and state relate? Mm. And they bring this back to Japan. Mm. And in a remarkably you know, modern way, you know, they make proposals and they yes. work out, not without many internal conflicts, this mm. is how we're going to do church and state in Japan. Yes, it's yeah. extraordinary. So the, 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 this reminds me, it's, it's a kind of an ebb and flow of various processes then that don't always make a coherent story mm. and they transfer across mm-hmm. territories mm-hmm. in ways that perhaps people might find a li- from a, a European point of view, mm-hmm. kind of startling to think that there'd be missions from the east to the west, mm-hmm. and that that had mm-hmm. a, a recursive influence back on the east. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose then what what we're asking uh, here is: is there a sense in which uh, Buddhism is being created both for uh, a, a unified con- as a unified construct in the west, mm-hmm. but also as a, an ethno-religious category 
in South Asia? Yes, and I think we have to think of several different competing strategies, sometimes from the same people, around this. Because by this period, Buddhism is no longer a missionary religion in Asia, with the possible exception of the Odd Hill tribe. So it's been a long time since any of the people who were involved in missionary activity um, they have no practical sense of how to convert. Hmm. They look at Christians, and of course the Christian missionary effort is not very effective in many places. The Irish missionary effort is much more about getting rid of surplus people from Ireland. Hmm. People are sent abroad with no sense of the local language. Um, they look So the, the Maynooth mission to China uh, in the late 1910s, early 1920s, they look with awe at an Irish person who can read the newspaper. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, so um, both Christians and Buddhists, looking at this Christian experience, misread the areas where Christians do have success and go, well, if they've got a young men's Christian association, let's have a young men's Buddhist association. I see. Here's a tract. A gospel tract society, let's have a Buddhist tract society. Mm. And of course what's missed is that where Christianity is effective is largely in minority ethnicities which attach themselves to this new religion on the logic of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yes, yeah. Rather than because of any particular organizing strength. So Buddhists developing what is global Buddhism, trying to work that out for themselves, they're really fumbling in the dark. Yes. At this time. At this time. And what we now think of as global Buddhism is the product of uh, a long struggle around this. In particular, I suppose, the discovery... Um, now, let me see how can I put this best. Kate Crosby says that one of the ways in which this is argued out is to say that... If the West has mastery of physical science, Asia has mastery of mental science, therefore meditation. Yes. And certainly what does turn out to be transmittable is Buddhism as practice, be it meditation or chanting or initiation, uh, in the case, for example, of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, that fits in part with theosophical occultist, um, mesmerist, spiritualist modes of new religion in the West, but it also turns out to be transmissible. It doesn't depend on being born within a particular ethnic community. And it provides a coherent answer to this question, which uh, in my own research I found this character founds struggling with. When you've given a lecture about Buddhism, when people are interested, what do you get them to do? The answer for Western Buddhists now is very clear, is you start a meditation course. Okay. Or the equivalent. Yes. Um, it's not clear back then. Yes. And they're finding their way towards what is religion? What does it mean to be Buddhist? Um, in, the, in the very practical sense of if we convert people, what is it that we want them to do? <laughs> <laughs> Many of those struggles would be familiar to perhaps... Um, uh, mainline evangelical uh, Christian churches as well, uh, in that <laughs> the emphasis tends to be, again, based on, on text as opposed to practice. 
and mm. the idea of secularization in Europe certainly being a focus on the textual rather than the practical. Mm. Um, to what extent then might we kind of understand um, uh, the study of religions as a whole to uh, how can we account for that through this kind of coherence we now know as Buddhism? Might we perhaps find a way into the study of religion? A big question, I know. Mm. <laughs> uh, through this idea of the coherence of something called Buddhism, which derived through its practice as opposed to its textual readings? or That's a really big question. <laughs> uh, it is a big question. Um, I think certainly in the West, many people are engaged in that process in a normative way. Um, I think from a from an academic point of view, and I would personally take a Marxist view on this, which is to say society or the world or the human constitution doesn't have a boundary around that which is inherently religious. It mm. doesn't work this way. Um, Pierre Hadot shows this very neatly in relation to uh, the philosophy of the ancient Scolia. Uh, and the way in which the spiritual exercises associated with, for example, the Stoa or the Epicureans as a religious community, mm. the kind of thing reflected in Marcus Aurelius's meditations, that that is lost once the schools are dispersed and these become simply bodies of texts. And indeed the church um, in Western Europe establishes itself the boundaries around that which is the province of philosophy mm -hmm. and where one can profitably read the pagans and that which is the province of religion. So these boundaries are constantly, um, I mean, we say negotiated, but of course these are huge, huge power relationships. Um, and in Asia, in Damaloka's time, a focus on meditation is still pretty marginal in most of Buddhist Asia. What matters is ordination. What matters is the power relations within individual sanghas. Uh, earlier on, we were speaking about boundaries within Europe with, or within the colonial world uh, over who is a white. Um, we talk about Damaloka as being one of the first Western Buddhists. Uh, he is in some ways, this probably isn't the case, he's one of the first visible Western Buddhists because he is now a figure of moral panic for Europeans in a way that he might not have been a hundred years previously. Mm -hmm. But this is also true from the Asian point of view. Countries like Burma or Thailand, which had previously had a multiplicity of different Buddhist hierarchies with much more flexibility given to individual monasteries, they are taking the European lesson that you need a national church mm. um, closely allied to yes. the central power. And therefore, from this point of view, uh, ordaining a European becomes something much more problematic, um, something which perhaps is done by a minority ethnic sangha, the Dewey, uh, rather than the central sangha. Uh, and indeed, uh, what happens repeatedly is that Europeans who want to become monks go to Ceylon, which is seen very often as the heart of Buddhism, and they're sent away. Yes, they're told, "I can't, I can't ordain you. You, know, you yes. don't fit within our categories." 
if you go to Burma, this is clearly said, you know, as sort of out, if you go to Burma, they'll be willing to ordain you there. <laughs> okay. And yes. that route is followed. Uh, we have no evidence that it's followed by Damaloka, but we see a lot of other uh, early Buddhist monks following this kind of route, trying to find the places in the mm. Asian Sanghas which are still happy to ordain Europeans. Yes. And then, of course, later that changes again. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. A fascinating story of of, of, of boundary crossings. Yeah, um, I, I suppose for anyone coming to this afresh, um, and they would like to maybe find out a little bit more. You've mentioned uh, Kate Crosby's work, but is there anybody mm-hmm. in particular you think people might be able to access so that they could learn a little bit more about what you've been speaking about? Uh, well, I should plug my own book, Buddhism at Ireland and say that we've put much of the research coming out of this on a single website, um, the Damaloka Project, so that's quite easy to find. Yeah, we'll make that available on the webpage. Wonderful to hear that interview uh, from Owen with Lawrence there. Um, They're both colleagues from the Irish Society for the Academic Study of Religions, and um, I should say that the interview ended somewhat abruptly there. Um, There uh, were a couple of audio blips and we thought that that was a, that was a nice point to to end the interview uh, but there's a slightly extended edition of the podcast available on the page um, on the website um, should you want to hear Lawrence talk it just to, just for another couple of minutes more and uh, don't forget to come back on uh, Thursday for our uh, response as ever and this time it comes from Christopher Silver and Philip De Slipe. Um I hope I've pronounced that correctly Perfect. Well, next week it's an interview that you've been doing, um, David. Indeed, uh, with Jeffrey Kripal um, from Rice, um, an interview which I've wanted to do for a long time, but we couldn't get our schedules to match up to do it in person, so uh, we ended up doing it over Skype recently. Um, it was great to speak to him. I don't agree with everything he writes but um we have a lot of crossovers in terms of the things Mm -hmm. we write about so we ended up having quite an enjoyable uh conversation both during the interview and um and afterwards so uh hopefully you'll enjoy that interview next week excellent Uh, so just now um before we sign off um we've got a lot to tell you about um so much so that we're not going to tell you everything today but we just thought we'd uh, talk a little bit about um what's coming up between now and the the next holiday break um and tell you about a, a new textual development on the RSP website indeed um we have finally uh, managed to put up transcriptions to um five of our most uh, popular um, interviews from our uh, back catalogue, including Linda Woodhead on the secularisation thesis, Jim Cox on uh, the phenomenology of religion, Carol Cusack on invented religions, Armin Gertz on cognitive approaches to the study of religion, and Francois Gauthier on uh, religion, neoliberalism, and consumer culture. Um, so those have been um, painstakingly put together by Martin Lepage, who's our archive manager, and um, also with the assistance of Travis Cooper, who transcribed the Armin Gertz interview. And so we're very grateful to them. And, and we hope that these will be a really useful addition to the website, um, whether for, for non-native English speakers to, to help them follow along with the podcast more easily. Um, people who have uh, hearing difficulties um, can now benefit from that side of the RSP. And students and teachers um, will be able to, to cite the podcast more easily and hopefully use it 
in, in teaching more easily as well. Yeah, well, my uh, experiences of using um, podcasts uh, as additional readings in, uh, when teaching classes, I found that one thing that happened over and over again was that the students would misspell the names of the scholars involved because they don't see it written in front mm-hmm. of them. So having the transcription there makes it actually much easier to give the podcast as a reading in class. So that's part of our intention there. We hope that you find it as useful as, uh, as we have. And also, if you, know, if you find this useful, maybe you consider um, helping out with a, another transcription. It'll take a couple of hours of your work, but um, hopefully you'll find it relatively easy to do and it'll be a, a contribution to uh, the scholarly field, um, mm-hmm. a comparatively little effort to yourself. Mm-hmm. So do please consider. Yeah, this is something that we're really hoping to develop further. So thanks again to Martin for that. And there's, uh, we've got more of Martin coming up actually this year as he's been recording a few interviews for us at the, um, the ISSR this year. Yeah, yeah, the International Society for the Sociology of Religion, um, which is in Belgium, I think. It was, was it Leuven? I believe um, so, yes. So, yes, he's recorded interviews with uh, Meredith Maguire, with... Anna Fideli, and with Mary Jo Knights, or Mary Jo Nets. Um, I think I've heard it pronounced both ways, so I'm <laughs> very much looking forward to that. And just on the topic of what's coming up in the year, we've, we've got a lot that we can confirm to you that will be happening. Um, I, I don't want to, to steal the thunder of, of um, some of the names, but you know, just looking at it, at it myself, um, you've got Koki von Stukrand coming up. You did that interview, Indeed. David, and also Tomoko Masuzawa. Um, it should be some big hitters there. That, th- those were recorded at the International uh, Association for the History of Religion um, in Erfurt recently, and um, we recorded, I think, a total of n- seven interviews. Seven interviews, one roundtable, and our Christmas special there. So, um, but we'll tell you more about that next week. Yeah. Um, Who we, else have we got coming up, Chris? It's it's such a huge list to be on. We've got um, Whitney Bowman, um, Brent Plate, Darren Shurkat, Jenny Butler. Uh, and, and then, you know, we're already looking um, to our schedule for 2016 now at this stage. So we've got interviews um, from sort of methodological approaches, discursive approaches to the study of religion, to um, more sort of religion and uh, and, and problematizing those kind of things like religion and film, uh, religion and planetary ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a- another focus on, on Ireland. Again, we've got uh, Jenny Butler speaking on uh, paganism um, in, in Ireland. We've also broadened our pool of interviewers uh, quite a bit, so as well as some familiar voices, you're going to be hearing voices um, such as Martin Lepage that we don't normally hear from too often, um, as well as... Um, We've got new interviewers in uh, in Peru and um, elsewhere in Europe, uh, so we're really broadening broadening out our um, our geog- geographical scope as well as our theoretical and methodological scope. Yeah, so we've been we've been wittering on for a good bit there. Um, as ever, remember our Facebook, Twitter, um, and iTunes uh, portals. Facebook by this point, I think, will have passed 3,000 followers. We're, we're about 20 away and when we're recording this, so uh, that's quite exciting. And um, Venetia Robertson continues to do great work for us there. And I actually spotted on iTunes, we do have a few more ratings. We've now got uh, 14 uh, ratings, where, and all of them five-star. Wonderful. Uh, and a couple of nice comments there. So if, if you get us through iTunes, you know, yeah, add your comments. <laughs> and thanks for those that already have. Um, I'd also like to remind you to 
please use the Amazon links um, if you're in the UK, Canada or, or the US. It really helps us out a lot. In fact, it paid for this new recording equipment that we're using here. Mm -hmm. So that's a, an easy way for you to support this independent, free at the point of use project at no expense to yourself. Other than that, I think the only thing left to say, Chris, is as ever, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.